So in James chapter five, one thing we should keep in mind is that James brings to a conclusion everything that he has been saying so far, right? Which is that the kind of faith that God appreciates is a faith that is pure, is a faith that is born of the spirit and that that kind of faith is practical. It doesn't just hear the word of God, but it, it engages in the doing of the word. That kind of faith is sourced from the spirit. That kind of faith is patient. That kind of faith submits to the will of God and all the principles that we have studied so far um, in this book. So now we turn to chapter five where he begins by what some people may consider a side note because it doesn't seem to directly tie into everything that he has been saying up until this point, but we're going to see how it does tie into everything he has been saying, which is with what you might call a rant against the oppressive reach of that era. So Stephanie, can you read for us from verse one to verse six? Come now, okay, so James chapter five, verse one. Come now, you rich, weep and hold for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moss-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and you will eat your flesh like fire. You have, like fire, you have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who moved, who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Thank you very much, Stephanie. So what we see here is obviously the wrong use of money, right? Or the abuse of money itself. And to answer the question of how this ties in with what we've been studying previously, in chapter four, like we just summarized, we said that the principle that drives the human nature is the principle of self. And that principle makes us place value on things that are material in nature because the things that are material naturally appeal to self. They naturally appeal to our five physical senses. The physical senses were primarily built to interact with physical matter, with material things, right? And it was so much of a problem because this is a recurring theme in this letter, the rich versus the poor. It was so much of a problem to the churches that James was writing to, the, the Jewish churches he was writing to, that it was leading to wars and fightings, you know, internally within them. They had come to a place where they had elevated the importance of having and not having because the people who had did not portray the right example of how to have correctly. And also the people who did not have, did not have enough security in the riches that are in Christ. You know, that ensures that their status on earth is not really what it looks like. And it's that principle of self, the principle that promotes friendship with the world essentially, you know, through the instruments of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, is that principle that produces an insatiable test for wealth and for money. Like, you know, if you're a good student of scripture, the Bible doesn't have an issue with money itself, but always, always has an issue with the love of money. 
just the same way it has an issue with anything else that you love that is apart from God. So what's happening here is that these rich oppressors that James is addressing, we don't know if they were part of the church, but it's very likely that they were, or he was generally, like he does in this letter, right, um, speaking sort of an ode to people who cannot hear him, which is um, the rich Romans of that time, essentially, or the rich Jews even, who may or may not have been in the church. Whoever the audience was, he's saying that they need to weep and howl for their miseries, for the miseries that are coming upon them because their riches are corrupted and their garments are moth-eaten. Their gold and silver is corroded. And then he says something. He says that their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. If we were to read this verse in a more modern, simpler translation, you're going to realize that James is actually looking forward here to the day of judgment or the day of retribution, if you like, to that time in the history of humanity when God will put off his redemptive garment and will put on the garment of a judge. And he says that there will be certain voices in that day that will be a witness either for you or against you. And of course, let's make the assumption that he's writing to believers here because the book of his letter will not have been read by non-believers. So he's writing to believers. And it's good to create this balance, like we've said, right? That as believers, we will not be judged on the basis of our sins because that judgment is taken care of by the blood of Jesus, but we're going to be judged on the basis of our works, right? Of our calling, of our giftings, of the ministry that has been committed to us. So some people whom God blessed with financial resources the second point about those resources is that they were corrupted because of how they were obtained. But the first point is that they were stockpiling these riches, you know, and that's the imagery he uses that your gold and silver is corroded, meaning that you, <laughs> you had much more than you needed for life and you stockpiled the rest. And he said that that kind of waste is going to be a voice, a witness in the day of judgment, right? So it means that when you and I stand, be stand before God, our money is one of the things that will speak. And it's not just in that futuristic judgment, even today, right? The way we use our money, what I'm trying to say to you is that money has a voice, right? Um, that, that's how important it is, even in the kingdom of God, it has a voice and it can be a witness either for you or against you. And when he says it will eat your flesh like fire, is referring to the fire of judgment, right? Because you have heaped up treasure in the last days. And in verse four, he reiterates the point of money having a voice. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mold your fields, which you kept back by fraud. So this is what corrupted their riches. What corrupted their riches was not necessarily that they got it by corrupt means, but that with those riches, they perpetrated injustice, right? So you know how society is divided yeah, um, along capitalist lines or just how human societies is um, divided, which is that we are often trading something in return for financial support in a sense, if you want to call it like that. So we are trading our skills, our time, 
um, and our resources in order for someone to pay us. And so what was happening is that poor laborers were laboring for these rich people and they were being defrauded of their wages, right? And then James says that the, these wages of the laborers who mold your fields, it cries out. So we've seen that money can actually cry out the same way that the blood of Abel cried out. And then he says that the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath, right? The Lord of Sabbath is the name that the Jews use for God when he comes in judgment, when he comes in vengeance to, to take retribution upon his enemies. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. What I want us to maybe address as we, as we begin this study is, what is it about money, right, that brings people that have it to this point exactly? Because you would think that if somebody's rich, then um, all their needs are met, right? I was reading the news recently, and I, I don't know if you know this footballer, Kylian Mbappe. I don't know how much money he has signed, you know, for the next three years to be paid by his club, but it's in the hundreds of millions in those three years. And you can look at those numbers and think, man, this guy is made for life, right? It's like he doesn't need anything anymore. But the testimony of scripture is that money itself is like, I don't know how to describe it. It's like um, a hole that you never get to the end of, right? That it's as though the more of it you have, the more greed it stares in you, the more desire that it stares in you to want to multiply it. Because someone who's rich is keeping back the wages of someone who's relying on those wages to feed themselves and their family. And that's the point I want us to discuss a little bit. What is it about money? Or what is it about this um, societal setup, right? That makes, that gives you this tendency to so corrupt um, to the point where it says you have murdered the just. Whether this means, whether this is used figuratively or he's saying practically that some people went as far as taking out people that were going to be a problem to them with their wealth, we don't know, but whatever case it is, murder is quite serious. So what is it about money that leads to this? I'd like to hear your thoughts. I mean, I've heard that money is a God. I mean, I heard one pastor, one preacher say something like, um, you can serve God and lie. You can serve God and commit, you know, funny, uh, like, immorality and all that but you cannot serve god and money at the same time those two are very incompatible i don't know maybe it has its own spirits that um, makes people want to do things that are evil that's the love mm -hmm. of it i guess okay. but, yeah so your, your proposition is that there's a spirit behind money that can can tame you if you don't tame it Yes, I mean, it's really, really powerful, you know, and I, 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 my prayer is that as much as God has, I mean, you know, when Paul said something like, I've learned to live, to abound and to obey, something like that, right? Mm -hmm. 
So I see that it's easier for a lot of people to live in poverty and just pray about, you know, surviving. But when money comes, the thing gets into their head and then they become a different kind of person, you know, more like being possessed by a certain spirit. But that's the love of it anyway. So mm -hmm. thank you. Thank you. Quickly writes in the chat, it contains so much power. Once you have it, almost everything that can be bought. Is at your mercy, right? That's why it can corrupt. I agree. Elon Musk, just you know, for instance, he has everything, but his character is just a crazy person. Sorry. I would like to hear what you think, Dami. Dami is the money merchant in our midst. Um, he deals with big money. What are your thoughts on this? Well, uh, I don't think having money is bad. And I think that's the same thing you're saying. And then like uh, the more of it you have, the more of it you want. But I feel a lot of people already has made a mistake as to what the purpose of money is supposed to be like. So uh, there was an interview I watched some time ago by someone that, 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 that was regarded as, um, as a bad guy, right? Mm -hmm. And then this guy, gave an opinion that blew my mind, right? Like what he said was better than what even if most preachers would say, right? Uh, I'm sure a lot of us have seen the interview. It was Tupac, right? And this guy was, you know, it was when he was coming up in his career and all that, when he started making money. So it was like, uh, he was complaining. He said, when he's going on the road and he sees homeless people, right? And, uh, someone walks up to him and say oh do you have change can you spare me something or something he said he will feel guilty if he has five thousand dollars in his pocket and he's handing someone one dollar or a quarter he said like he was talking about like you know he, he talked about all that and he was like how is it fair that someone has billions and billions that you know they just they just keep accruing more and more right and some people are really suffering Right, and when you watch some programs like uh, Soft White on the Belly, right, and some other guys like that, you know, that just expose the true human nature more than what is what is what is apparent everywhere, right? We realize how, how privileged we are. I feel, to to me, I feel the purpose of money, right, is that if you're able to get it in a few years' time, there should be some people that will live a certain lifestyle, right? That will not even know that they are able to, to uh, live such, uh, they're able to have such opportunities because of you, right? They don't even need to know you, but you should be able to provide that. Like there was this story of Andrew Carnegie that I had, I don't know how true it is, but like after making all the money and, you know, of course he was one of the first industrialists and all that, and their work ethic was crazy and, you know, but so they got the money in such a at the detriment of a lot of people a lot of people lost their life and all that they didn't care but they just got the money but it got to a point in his life when he realized that the money is useless to him and he started giving back right and he built schools and he built libraries across universe uh, across the u.s and he did a lot of scholarship and everything and then like a lot of americans maybe like for the next 10, 20 years, I don't know how long they lasted, I enjoyed good education, right? 
they were able to have access to education, they were able to enjoy good education. Some of them were able to enjoy free education because of the sacrifice of one man that realized the purpose of money. So that's, that's the philosophy, uh, philosophy I have right now. Money itself is, in itself is not bad, like you said, right? But when we cannot define the purpose of money or what it's supposed to do for us, I think that's where the problem is. Yeah, thank you. So you take issue with the with discerning and deciding on the purpose of money, and that when that is missed, um, then what's going to end up happening is just a crazy worship of it, right? I think one thing that we can agree on, like we could mention generally from everything that's been said, is that money is powerful. And I go as far as saying that money is a kind of God, small g, of course, G-O-D. Why do I say that? That it is a kind of God. In fact, Jesus actually calls it a God. He calls it mammon. And he says that you can actually worship it. The reason for that is you need to ask yourself, why do humans worship in the first place? The reason we worship is that we are insufficient, right? Another way that you can put the word insufficient is that we are finite. We are, we are limited. We, we are a bag of infirmities. You may have heard that phrase before. Like the average person doesn't know tomorrow, even Elon Musk, like we said last week, doesn't know tomorrow. If he knew tomorrow, he would have delayed his Twitter bit by maybe two or three weeks. And he wouldn't have gotten into this impasse he is in now. That's how insufficient we are. That as smart, as brilliant, as wise as we are with all the data we have, we don't know tomorrow. Yet we are conscious of tomorrow, right? We know that we have to plan for tomorrow. We know we have to prepare for tomorrow. You know, that's what differentiates us from the animals is that they're not, both of us don't know tomorrow, but they are not conscious of it. They're just exercising their God-given instincts. But we are much more controlled because we are aware of the implications of not being ready for tomorrow, right? And so money appeals to that insufficiency, to that sense of insufficiency, so that your confidence levels increase naturally when there's more in your account than when there is none. Right? You have more um, confidence in making decisions. In fact, you can make decisions apart from God when you have the means to make it. It is a direct replacement for God, which is why the Lord is not going to bring anyone into true kingdom riches, into true kingdom wealth, who does not learn the principle of dependence on, on God. Just in case God puts money in your hand, the way to receive that and to ensure that it doesn't diminish and it continues to multiply, is to maintain your dependence on the Lord. Because that is what the spirit of money is after, right? If it can shift your dependence from God to itself, then it doesn't need to even make you denounce Christ. It has accomplished everything that it can. And that's why God, being a jealous God, says, you know, Jesus told us that with God, all things are possible. <laughs> but he told us that you, you cannot serve God and mammon. Even God can make it happen, right? Cannot serve God and mammon. Um, I know that famous scripture in the book of Matthew chapter six, right? That says that if, if your eye is single, your whole body will be full of light. It's interesting to know that the context of that scripture was money, right? I know that we use the scripture to preach alignment and submission, but the context is money. It was in the verses before that Jesus said, you cannot serve. God and mammon. But if your eye remains single, so that regardless of how much comes into your care, 
your confidence, your dependence is still on God. You don't buy a house because you have money to buy it. You buy a house because it pleases God that you should do so. So that even if you have the means to do something, but it doesn't please God for you to do that thing, you don't do it. That is when your worship is to God and not to money. And I can tell you that it doesn't matter what your level of financial capacity is right now. You're going to be tested along those lines, right? That even if your financial capacity is $1,000, there'll be things within the bandwidth and the perimeter of that $1,000 that you can legitimately do <laughs> that the Spirit of God, who is your Lord, will not have you do. And you see, what you choose to do is what then reflects your worship. And Jesus says that if your eye is single, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is evil, so if anything shifts your dependence from God to your resources, it's going to lead you a path down a path that even you cannot predict. If your confidence is in what is in your bank account, if your confidence is in how much better you can appear than the other, it's going to lead you down a path that you cannot predict. And so the way, the correct way to deal with money is to receive it as stewards of it, not owners of it, not possessors of it. We, yes, we can own money and possess it, but we are only stewards of it. The wealth that God puts in our hands is going to be used to his glory. And when we do that, the testimony of money <laughs> before the court of God is that we used it well. We used it to the glory of God because it, it has a voice in the heavens. One of the things that we're going to be praying into tonight is prayers of repentance because the Spirit of God wants to put more into our hands. But we need to trust him to, to take us back to where we squandered or our family squandered, where we were unfaithful, where we moved because we had and did not reckon on him. We want to lay those disagreements, if as it were, with the Spirit beside tonight so that we can begin on a fresh plane with him. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Yeah, any extra thoughts on that before we move on? I think people tend to use this as a ploy. You know, if God gives me money, I'll be a kingdom financier. I would finance the king. It's only going to go to the kingdom. I've heard so many people say those things. And then God gives them just half of what, maybe just a tiny bit, just test them. Maybe with one contract or so. And you know what? It just is something else. And the kingdom is not part of it at all. So just saying that people are tricky. Yeah, that's an important point, right? Which is why God is not in a hurry to answer all prayers about money. Because he sees the heart. Your heart has the template of your future written on it. Um, and one thing we're going to see is that God does not deal with us on, the, on financial terms, actually. He doesn't deal with us on bargains, if you like, because our um, economic model is built around bargains, right? and trade by butter as it were. So we often bring that into our relationship with God. You know, we would pray over our tithe. <laughs> we even give our seed a name and drop it, hoping that this 20 euros or dollars I'm dropping now in this offering basket 
that God will use it to open a door to a new house for me. Right? Very transactional. God does not deal with people like that, I can assure you. He doesn't accept those terms. Anyway, um, let's continue reading. We're going to come to that. Verse 7 to verse 12, Stephanie. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until he receives the early and later and latter rain. You also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance. Sorry? We count them blessed who endure. Oh, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Thank you very much. So James now switches to say, what is the antidote, right, to this? Um, to this wisdom of greed, if you like, to this principle of self-service, especially with the instrument of money. Because God knows that as believers, we need money. We need money for our upkeep. Even Jesus needed money, right? We need money for our upkeep. More so, we need money to accomplish the kingdom agenda. The Bible says in the book of Zechariah that it is true prosperity true prosperity that, that my kingdom will spread. He knows that we need money, but his, his recommended path into that kind of wealth and even not just into money, but into everything that he has for, the, for us in the kingdom, including the future physical appearance of that kingdom. The recommended path, like we saw in James chapter one is be patient brethren, until the coming of the Lord. So the coming of the Lord is a marker that will shift a lot of things, right? But we'll come to that. He says, be patient, be patient, right? And he, he, he gives us the analogy, the metaphor of a farmer. He says that if you're going to be a believer who is going to be mature and who will last long with God, you're going to need to have the mindset of a farmer, right? What's the mindset of a farmer? A farmer has the mindset of process. A farmer is willing to endure process. He's willing to go through process. He's willing to, he's willing to plant things, put seeds in the ground, plant them, till the ground, water them, fertilize them, wait for the rain, and eventually harvest. <laughs> there is no farmer that plants today to reap tomorrow. No. There is, there is like, like patience is your default virtue. The willingness to endure process. He says that he waits until he receives the, the early and the latter rate, right? Um, and tying this back to the topic of money, one thing I want to say is that God, I said initially that the first thing that God 
will deal with us if he's going to give us kingdom finances, kingdom wealth, is that he's going to need to teach us how to be dependent on him. And I want to tell you, and this might be controversial to you, but you can think about it later. God is not going to enlarge any Christian suddenly, financially. For God to give you true kingdom finances, he's going to take you through a process. And I know that you may tell me, oh, Joshua, someone, somebody can win a lottery of 10 billion US dollars. <laughs> you know, if that happens to you, right, and it is God who gave you such money, it means that your process is learning how to depend on God. Because I can assure you that you're going to have that money in the bank and God is going to ask you not to use it. Because when you have money, <laughs> you're going to be empowered. And just in case you have not learned at that point, the principle of dependence, it is through that money that you're going to now learn it, right? I think it was a couple of years ago that I was watching a video from Deutsche Fella about they, they try to trace some, some lottery winners in the, in the United States, people that won the lottery. You know how the lottery goes. You can just hit a big, you know, $5 million or $500 million. I don't know what the percentage is, but a very large percentage of them were broke <laughs> eventually. God is not going to in increase any of us without process. If we're going to come into kingdom financial prosperity, we're going to need to be people that have the mindset of a farmer, right? People that can endure a process. For a season in your life, God is going to ask you to invest in yourself. And in that season, you're not going to be making money because it's very possible for you to, de to determine that money is the most important thing and every minute of your life is spent making money. You know? Now, as I'm here, for example, as a software engineer, right? There's a lot of things I can do to make money outside of my normal job. But if I do those things, I'll probably not be able to do this Bible study. Or even if I do it, I'll probably not be able to do it well. Or maybe I can even combine both of them. <laughs> but the Spirit of the Lord said, no. He would rather have me do other things. Those things today do not bring a dime, not even a penny, right? For anybody who is going to come into the riches that are in heaven is going to need to learn how to enjoy a process. A process of coaching by the Lord. He's going to ask you to give. He's going to ask you to not give. He's going to ask you to spend. He's going to ask you to not spend. Right? And all of that process is to ensure that your dependence is on him. And if you're going to be the kind of person who depends on God. According to Paul, there is an invaluable skill that you're going to have to learn. And that is the skill of contentment. Friends, contentment is not thought. <laughs> contentment is not imparted. Contentment is learned. Paul says that I've learned how to abound, meaning that there are seasons in my life where there's so much. I've learned how to manage those seasons. I've also learned how to abase so that just in case God puts me in a situation where I need to abase, I'm totally fine. That's what it takes for you to keep your dependence upon God. And it says, be patient. You also be patient. Steady your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The coming of the Lord, like I hinted at earlier, is going to switch a lot of things around. Suddenly you're going to realize that the people who are rich are not really rich. 
in Jesus' eyes, they are poor and miserable and wretched. Of course, not all of them, but this is a generalization. And a lot of the people you might call poor are rich. And you see, one of the things that enables the farmer to endure the process is that the farmer has a clear vision of the harvest. You know, it, like the process may not be palatable, may not be friendly, but the farmer can see through the eyes of his mind or of his spirit that these strawberries are precious. They are precious for food. They are precious for commerce. They are precious for health. They are precious for many things. And he endures. And if you and I are going to follow God's model, we're going to need to see into the coming of the Lord. Jesus promised that we can be rewarded on earth financially and we will be rewarded on earth financially. But if that was our only goal, then we have all men the most miserable, right? Like Paul said, the biggest motivation is the true riches, what Jesus calls the true riches of the kingdom. When Jesus in Revelation chapter 2 was talking to the church in Smyrna, he told them that I know your poverty, but you are rich. It's interesting that he didn't use the, the, the future form of that verb. You know, he didn't say you will be rich. He says right now, you are rich. Right. Um, and I would like to hear our thoughts on this point about patient endurance. And we've looked at these two principles of how God deals with us in the kingdom, especially as regards finances. What are your thoughts of, on this? Or maybe perhaps even your experience in it. I wanted to raise an issue with this patient because I've heard a preacher say, uh, and a very well-known preacher, Elijah does, as a matter of fact, say, because of this whole patient thing and, you know, wait for the coming of the Lord, that a lot of our fathers did not take advantage of their position in the 70s and in the 60s and the 70s they didn't invest they didn't buy lands the you know their christianity was more of this whole cake be patient the lord is coming and so they didn't have that you know not they had the opportunity but because they were of this mindset they did not do much to secure their future as you know such and so he was saying they were not wise and that we should not be like that and, you know, just focus on um, that. Yes, so God is going to come, but you need to um, make do before that. I'm wondering what you think, Joshua. You probably know what I think already, which is that, number one, you shouldn't make, you should never make those kind of generalizations. No matter how popular a preacher you are, you shouldn't. If you do it, it's a mistake, right? Um, even if you are accurate or popular, but it's a mistake to make those kind of generalizations. Number two is just to point us back to the principle I mentioned earlier, right? That um, the way to use money is to depend on God. You see, God himself knows when he's coming, <laughs> but you and I don't know, right? So if we're depending on God, I can assure you that he will tell us when to invest and where to invest. And if we didn't invest and we ended up in penury, that is probably the surest sign that we were not really dependent on God. Maybe we had a job that was bringing in the flow of cash and we thought this job would always be there and unknown to us because we saw how subtle this is in James chapter four, how subtle the wisdom of the human nature is, right? Unknown to us, our dependence was on our job, right? So God is not financially illiterate in any sense whatsoever. 
Friends, he will ask you to invest and he will show you where to invest. You know, there was famine in the land of Canaan and Isaac wanted to relocate like everybody else. But God instructed him to sow in the land. That's an investment. You know, that's, that's what I meant when I said the, the willingness to endure a process, right? He's going to ask you to invest in yourself. He's going to ask you to invest in things. Like a good way to look at it is that you might think that the biggest need right now is if you have $1 million is to distribute the $1 million to homeless people, for example, on the streets. And then before you blink your eyes, the $1 million is gone. Except if God commanded it, that's a squandering of money. Because imagine if you invested that money instead in apartment blocks, right? That can be rented at a reduced cost um, to church workers, for example. You have done way more for the kingdom than that squandering of $1 million on people that will come back tomorrow with exactly the same need, right? And this is where it is challenging for you and I. And this is why God is bringing it up for us. The challenging part is the dependence part. You know, if you're the kind of person that is used to spending all that you get, you need to depend on the Holy Spirit to know when the spending is part of, it's now your flesh. It's not, it's not giving anymore, it's just your flesh. If you are on the other side, you're the kind of person that withholds too much. Hmm. <laughs> Jesus has enough counsel for you. None of us is, is called to stockpile wealth. None of us is called to stockpile wealth. And finally, the person who made that comparison, if what we have in Nigeria today, right, with the billionaire pastors we have, if that is what the person is referring to that could have been, then I don't think it is something worth having, right? You know, Peter and John said, silver or gold I don't have, but I have something with God. And it was, a, I think, like the Pope was in the conversation somehow. I don't know if it was him directly at some point that said that the church today can no longer say silver and gold. Have I known that the church is rich? And if you come to Germany, the state church is super rich. And somebody replied, I don't know if it's Martin Luther also. Somebody replied and said that that is why the church cannot say such as I have. Because we have traded the reality for money. So Peter and John, the first apostle, says we don't have money, but we have something. Our generation says <laughs> we have money, but we don't have the thing that can raise random cripples on the street and spread the message of Jesus. Right? Jesus himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. So that's my take on that. Thank you, Joshua. There's also this thing about only fools doubt proof. You know that for I've heard it. I'm in a certain church where a denomination where that is the, you know, what they talk about all the time. And when I was in that branch in Nigeria, I saw like young boys of 17 years old that driving crazy cars, and it's like. And we knew that these people were Yahoo boys. Yeah, but it's like, this is proof anyway. It is proof that God, you know, I mean, bring the money to church. We'll cleanse it for you. I don't know if you've heard those things. We'll purify the money. And so it's just this whole death or be patient thing. I don't know. I don't think people see that part of, I don't think people even read James. I don't know. 
I think they fit it somehow. You know, yeah. there was an outrage on social media, right, earlier this year that our teenagers are beginning to, um, um, like, they are beginning to commit, I don't know if it's commit, commit rituals to make money. It's those yeah. kind of doctrines of, of demons that rhyme so well, that leads to, because what is being worshipped is certainly not God. The Bible says that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that even though he was rich, he emptied himself. You know, if God has asked you to empty your account before, and I didn't say you should do it, I said if God has asked you to do it, when your heart wants to be afraid, he will take you to that scripture. He emptied himself. He was not afraid to do it. He was rich enough that he could empty himself. And he says it's because he emptied himself that you became rich. Friends, the only reason you are alive is because of Jesus. The only reason you are alive is to live for him. And it is very easy that for you to substitute that for Mercedes and Audi and Teslas. It is very easy for you to substitute that, to, to begin to think that God is somehow getting the glory in your Tesla. You don't know him. You've never seen his glory. That's why you think that your big building contributes anything to his glory. God is not interested in open shows of glory. That is what Israel thought, right? After Eli died and they thought that let's bring the ark of the, of the, of the presence, the ark of the covenant, and we're going to defeat these Philistines. And the ark was captured <laughs> and taken to, to, to the house of Dagon. And the woman gave birth to Ichabod and said, the glory has left. You, you may have the ark, but no glory. And God is not interested in playing your games of let's bring the ark, even though we are living in iniquity. There's going to be something. His glory is too, his, his glory is too, is too high for that. It's too high for it. Friends, the reason you are alive is because of Jesus. The reason you are free from the chains of Satan today is because of Jesus. And if he tells you to give everything for him, right, it is not too much to give. Okay. Does it make sense, Stephanie? Yes, it, it makes sense. I've been for several outreaches in Nigeria, and it's like um, people say, "How can you spread the gospel when you don't have, you know, look look wealthy or something?" And so churches brag about the cars that they have in the parking lot and all. But then when they coached us, it's like, "Tell them this is what Jesus did for me. He did this. He did that. He did this." If you're poor, come, he'll make you rich. If you're, and you see people saying, oh, I have children. I don't know how to make them go to school. And then we will now say, and yeah, I know I've done this one. Come to my church. Jesus will take your children to school. He will give you money for business and all that stuff. So it's like a strategy yeah. for evangelism. If God, I, if you can show that God is good to you. Yes, and you're going to evangelize a lot of people. If you build a 100,000 capacity church on that kind of message, you will not, you probably not lack people to fill the building. It's just that you'll be creating false converts. The kind of people that Jesus described that they have no roots, even though it's as though something came out when the sun came, because the sun is a, it's a when, not an if. You know, it, it's, it's not that by a bad person, so sun, the sun shined on you. The sun is a when, it's a matter of when. It says that it scorched them and they died, and Jesus didn't even shed a tear for them, you know. 
you're going to make false converts. No doubt, people are going to say the sinner's prayer with you. But I can assure you that if that's the gospel that brought them into the church, they are false converts. They are the social media army that will be fighting the church when they hear of a scandal involving a pastor. Yes, they are the ones, <laughs> let's not press that topic, but you're making false converts. And that's how you end up with the situation we are in Nigeria, that we have millions of Christians, but no Christians in the nation. You know, the essence of what Jesus came to deliver is missing in our daily lives. Peter and John said, silver and gold, we don't have. And we don't even care to have because when, when Simon the sorcerer offered Peter money for the anointing, he says, your money perish with you, right? He didn't want to count it to see how much it was. <laughs> he says, let it perish with you. There's something we have that Comparing it to money is an insult. It is the glory of God. And maybe this is why the glory of God is not as evident as it is, as it was in the days of the apostles, that we have false gods. Friends, this is the biggest hindrance to our true prosperity as a church. For me, true prosperity is not when one of us has 15 private jets, but true prosperity is when the needs of each and every one of us collectively is fully met that there is no project that any of us will want to embark on spiritually or physically that your hands will be lacking to do that project. None of us, that the least amongst us, the least amongst us will have sufficiency. Right? We have not seen that kind of prosperity in the church. We have seen a lopsided prosperity that sometimes even almost feels like a Ponzi scheme. You know, that's what we have seen in the church. And tonight we're going to repent, actually, so that God will look upon us with mercy. Will look upon us with mercy and bring us back to the place of dependence. He says, do not grumble. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Do not grumble. You know, in First Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says, I think verse 16, says, rejoice always. In verse 17, it says, in everything, give thanks. But this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. And it says, quench not the spirit of God. One of the things that we're going to be seeing as we're looking at this chapter is that, and even the verses that follow is that there is a sense in which sin is responsible for poverty, for sickness, for affliction. It is a clear biblical principle. What is not a biblical principle is that all sin, all sickness is, is directly caused by sin, but there's a clear precedent that sin can be responsible. So what, what I'm saying that to say that in case somebody has lost the fire of the spirit, it's possible that you quench the spirit by grumbling and complaining, right? against one another is possible that you extinguish that flame that was burning so that you can pray and fast and cry for the flame but if you don't begin with repentance you will not be able to rekindle the same fire that was lost verse 10 tells us the opposite of what i just said <clears throat> my brethren take the prophets who spoke in the name of the lord as an example of suffering and patience so stephanie said earlier that your outward prosperity and the fact that things are easy and good with you is supposed to be your evangelical too. James is saying that 
take the prophets, right? As an example of suffering and patience, the, the prophets suffered not because they, they sinned against God. They suffered not because they were out of the will of God. They suffered precisely because they were faithful. Precisely because they were faithful. Just take them as an example, right? So that even though in their time, they were not acclaimed, you know, somebody could look at them and say, you know, our prophets are not wise. Um, um, Elisha should have should have collected Naaman's offering and that by now, I mean, he healed the man, right? Those kind of preachers would have talked like this. You know, by now he would have had houses that the kingdom can use, you know. But the Bible says that they are an example of suffering and patience. And it says, indeed, we count them blessed who endure. So that even though at that time, in the midst of their obedience, they were foolish and by secular judgment, today we count them blessed. What this is showing us is the power of a life that endures God's process, that allows God to be the one who leads you in all things. A life that endures God's process, right? It is a life of power. It produces power. It produces a powerful witness. It produces a powerful testimony in the earth. God can use your life as a reference to the nations. God can recommend your life to many people, right? And so it's important that you and I embrace process. If God has given me $3,000 as my current level, I embrace it, right? There's so much I can do to increase it outside of the will of God. And those things are not even sinful, but I just know that they are not the will of God for me right now. So I leave those things. You know, Paul said to Timothy, endure hardship as a good soldier of Christ. If you read those kind of scriptures and you just skim over them, you are going to enter a season of dealings. It not give you understanding. It says, indeed, we count them blessed who endured. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful, right? And so, you know, you know, earlier we said that if you're going to endure, you're going to need the skill set, the mindset of a farmer. And one of the things that enables endurance is that you can see the fruit. You can see the outcome. You can see the harvest. What is the harvest that you and I are looking out for? The harvest that we're looking out for is the compassion and mercy of God. Which is why I said earlier that God does not deal with anybody on the basis of bargains, on the basis of commerce. He deals with us on the basis of mercy. And you cannot compare those two things, right? And that is why he said in verse 12 that don't swear, don't come to God and be telling him that if you do this for me, I'm going to do that for you, right? It, it's not necessary when you're dealing with God, right? What we're supposed to do is not to appeal to our self-righteousness like Job did erroneously in the beginning. Neither are we supposed to, of course, curse God or deny him because of the process like his wife recommended that he did, that he do. But we're supposed to submit ourselves to the mercy of God. Right. Um, let us not come to God with a bargaining chip on our shoulders with a bargaining mindset. Oh, 
you know, you can pray, you can be very desperate for a house. You say, God, if you give me this house, I'll be praying every night from 12 to 5 <laughs> in this house. And you're bargaining like this. And then you now get the house. And you now realize that, Kai, house is no longer your problem. There are many other problems. You know, there's one of us that has the capacity to keep an old. And so when you are pressed, you're supposed to throw yourself at the mercy of God, not, not at the not at your capacity or your capability to negotiate with him, but at his mercy. One thing that is interesting about this point is that Jesus actually teaches in Luke chapter 18 that it's possible that if you press God long enough, he can actually give you something that may destroy you eventually. Right? We saw this with Hezekiah, for example. Um, Jesus said in, Matthew, in Luke chapter 18 that the friend who came to his friend's house to knock at midnight, that his friend will not give him because he's his friend. This has gone beyond friendship now. This is just a sort of disgust, rather. You know, just take what you're looking for and go. Our prayers must be submitted to the will of God. And we need to learn to press until his will comes to pass and to stop pressing when his will has been revealed, even if it's not what we wanted. That's how to endure a process. I can tell you that what I'm telling you is practical in my life. I've prayed for people not to die and cried before God and begged God and they died. You know, you know what you're supposed to do when that happens? You rise up from your knees, you dust your feet and you worship God. If you decide to murmur and complain, you're going to quench the spirit. Right, because none of us knows better than God. None of us can answer prayers. Okay, any thoughts before we move on? Just to say that grumbling just comes naturally sometimes. It's very hard to like hold back sometimes. But yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like we said last week, just give thanks. Give thanks. Give thanks. Can you read for Stephanie? We're running out of time. Verse 13 to 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing, sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a, with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Thank you. Yeah, so is anyone, based on everything that has been said, is, is anyone amongst you suffering? We've seen that in a sense, the sun will rise, right? How can you stay away from a complaining spirit? He says, let him pray. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that the spirit also groans. There is, there is a groaning activity. Creation is groaning. We are groaning. The spirit is groaning. And that's, in a sense, that's what Job did 
he didn't curse God. He didn't want to. He said, God, I don't understand what you're doing. I'd rather argue with you than to deny you. Right? And that's what groaning sort of is. You know, bringing passionate pleas before the Lord, petitioning him. Right? And sometimes those, those groanings cannot be put to words. And he says that's what to do with your suffering. Because, like Stephanie said, the natural instinct of the natural man, the natural wisdom that all of us have inherited by, by micro-evolution, micro, please note that word, micro-evolution, the natural wisdom that all of us have inherited, right, is the wisdom of the flesh, which is that if things are not going my way and I sense that God could have done it, but he didn't do it, then I become despondent. I fall into despair. I begin to try to avoid God as much as possible. He says those are moments to pray. In case you've been looking for a motivation to pray, look for suffering and use it as an opportunity to exercise your privilege before God. Prayer is a privilege that we have to come into the highest court in the heavens and to present petitions, please, before heaven. It's a privilege. And you see, God doesn't give privileges without responsibility. If God only gives us new creation privileges and no responsibilities, we'll become spoiled children. And that is the story of the people who emphasize such a grace doctrine, right? But God always balances privilege responsibility, especially in a fallen world. Too much privilege would make us too attached to this world, will make us not realize that Everything we are seeing and touching is passing away. I've illustrated this before. But the privilege of prayer also places on us the responsibility of prayer. It says, is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Do you see anybody amongst you suffering? Then pray. Is any cheerful? Let him sing psalms. And then he starts talking about a sick person or sick people in the community. And this is interesting because he seems to drive the point that this sickness, right, is tied to a problem of sin. Like I've said earlier, and I don't have time to tease this out as well as we could have. Not all sickness is because of sin. Most sickness is not even because of any practice. Of course, we know that in a sense, all sickness is because of the original sin. But if we take the original sin out of the equation, what we mean is cause and effect. This person did something and that's why they're sick or they're suffering. It's not usually the case. A classic example is when the disciples of Jesus saw a blind man and asked Jesus who sinned that this man was born blind, his father and his mother or him before he was born. And Jesus said none of the above. And the tone of the conversation indicates that in some cases that was the case because Jesus met some people and he healed them and he says, go and sin no more else something worse will happen to you. So it's, it's, it's important that in these matters, we don't hold an either or um, view, but that we hold a very balanced one. So it appears that the sickness that James is referring to here is a sickness that is caused by sin. Because you might think that James is giving you a general formula for sick people. But you and I, if you've been around the church, long enough knows that not everybody that is prayed for is healed, right? Not everybody that is prayed for recovers immediately. And it has nothing to do with sin for a lot of them. 
And even if it does, you don't know. <laughs> it's not obvious, but it probably doesn't, right? But he's speaking about a specific case here of sickness that is brought upon by sin. He says, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, smearing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So it's not the smearing of the oil, <laughs> which unfortunately we have made to be the antidote. The antidote is not the smearing of the oil, which is the anointing of the oil. The antidote is the prayer. Let them pray. It is the prayer of faith, right? That will save the sick, not the oil of faith, <laughs> but the prayer of faith. We don't have time. I would have asked you what the prayer of faith is and would have tried to tease it out a bit more. But I can tell you that the prayer of faith is the kind of prayer that is prayed when the will of God has been discerned. The prayer of faith is not the kind of prayer that is prayed with a loud voice and authoritatively. And I heard a preacher saying that it's the kind of prayer you only pray one time and you don't repeat it. Those things are not scriptural, right? Because the example you used here, Elijah prayed seven times. The prayer of faith is a prayer that you pray that when you know, when you have picked it, that this is the will of God. And, the, and like we said last week, this is the hardest discipline, right? When someone calls you in an emergency, that's the hardest discipline before you start releasing words to pick the will of God. You know, Jesus picked the will of God concerning Lazarus and it was that this sickness is not unto death. And so he didn't bother traveling early. Because he knew that even if Lazarus dies, the will of God is that it's not, he shouldn't die. So he will come back. Right? Um, so that is what the prayer of faith is. It's a prayer that is founded on the will of God because it is the will of God that gives the prayer of faith his authority. He says, and the Lord, <laughs> not the preacher, right? Also note this about healing. The Lord, the Lord will raise him up. And it says, if he has committed any sins, he will be forgiven. What we see, and then it says in verse 16, confess your trespasses. Don't hide it and pray one for another. And it ties it directly to your healing, that you may be healed. You know, I can tell you my own short story. I hope it's not trivial to you, which is that even though I'm going to be 30 in September, I still have... Um, some traces of acne that usually bust out once in a while and i've asked the holy spirit about this over and over again and my my skin in general is way better than it was before but one of the things the holy spirit has said to me is that i shouldn't eat certain things which makes sense certain overly sweet things or overly milky things or things like this because i'm going to have an outbreak and i can tell you friends that there are times when i'm going to buy one special kind of cake and I can literally see the Holy Spirit looking at me with the side of his eyes and I buy it and I eat it and I have an outbreak. In that kind of situation, <laughs> the, like the prayer of faith is not you commanding the thing to disappear. The, the prayer of faith begins by confessing your trespasses to one another. I'm emphasizing this because this is what God said we should do tonight, right? That we want to lay baggages and you might think that maybe this doesn't apply to you but is there something in your life that you need to be healed you can ask the lord to show you where you have heard you know jesus said that if you don't forgive men their trespasses neither will god forgive you your trespasses there's a lot of theological debate about what that means but one of the clear applications right of it is that 
in my view, forgiveness is one of the biggest blockers of unforgiveness is one of the biggest blockers of healing. Somebody hurt you, somebody insulted you. Have you really forgiven? He says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And now it is here we see the advantage of power with God. The person the Bible calls a righteous man here is the one who endures process. It's that farmer that we saw in verse 7. The one who has built up, if you like, who has built up spiritual capital with God. And he says that prayer that this man prays is not usually necessarily always just one word. It is effective. It is fervent. In fact, another translation says that in prayer, he prays. <laughs> You know, you know when you pray in prayer, it it avails much. It makes tremendous power available. And you see, earlier we're talking about the things that enable us endure the process, right? The Bible says that Jesus, because of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And we said that if you can see the fruit, that's one of the incentives to endure. And friends, having power with God is supposed to be a sufficient incentive to endure the process. When you look into your future and you see that God is leading you through, through the obediences of today, he's leading you to the place where your prayer can avail much. Friends, that is enough reason. I know that there's reward in heaven, but even on earth, this is enough reason to persevere, to endure the process. That God will bring you and I to the place where our prayers will be effective. And then he tells us with this Elijah analogy in verse 17, that prayer is not for strong people because there's a tendency for you to, to say, okay, don't compare us to Elijah. Elijah was obviously special. But James points to his humanity because he ran away from Jezebel. So he points to his humanity, says he was like you and I. But what stood him out was that he prayed earnestly. He prayed earnestly. Just in case you think that you're weak, you're not the favorite right? Or you're not the best. You're in good company. Prayer is not for the strong. No, it's for those who recognize that they are weak, for it is then that God can strengthen them. The Bible says, and he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and earth produces fruit. Okay. Stephanie, can you read the last um, two verses? Brethren, if anyone so among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will serve, sorry, will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Wow. Amazing, isn't it? Yes. This is, friends, this is the value of maturity. You know, this is actually how we concluded Galatians chapter 6. Where Paul says, is, if anyone is overtaken by fault, let, let the ones who are mature restore that one in humility. This is one of the reasons to endure that through you, through your story, through your testimony, through your faithfulness, God can bring practical help to the sinner, to the one who has turned from the way. He says that through your life, God can save a soul from death. And oh, you need to see the rejoicing in heaven when the soul is drawn from death. 
through your life, God can cover a multitude of sin. This is an incentive, friends, as we conclude the book of James, to submit to the maturing process. We began by talking about enduring temptations, sorry, enduring trials, defeating temptations, operating by the spirit of faith, operating by the wisdom from heaven, submitting to God, and now persevering through the process is what chapter five talks about. That rain can come because of your life. You can be called a rainmaker. Yes, you can be called a rainmaker. Not because you're anything, but just because you submitted to the process. You allow God to walk through you. And now your prayers can avail much. And now God can use you to pull many from the fire. He can use you to cover a multitude of sin. God is looking for men and women like this. He's looking for a church with this stature, a church with this capacity. And it's my prayer that as God blesses us, as God increases us, as God lifts us, as God promotes us, as God even humbles us, whatever it is that God does in our lives, that it will not shift our confidence, it will not shift our motivation, but that we will endure indeed. We'll endure indeed until we see the breaking out of that glory that has been planted within us. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.